Welcome. This is the Woodbury Church of Christ Sermon Podcast. We're glad that you tuned in, and if you'd like to know more about our church, you can find out all the information at woodburychurch.org. Or we'll see you some Sunday, Sundays at 10 a.m. Looking forward to it. It was 1996. I was in college, and we had some friends, and we had taken a trip to St. Louis. I'm not much of a baseball guy, but they wanted to go to a Cardinals game. I kind of got a little antsy. I got up out of my seat, and I started walking around the exterior of this stadium. And it has an outside walkway. And I noticed there's a big crowd on the road that is leading up to the St. Louis Arch. Way more people out there than are watching the game. And I'm not sure what's going on, not sure what's happening. Is it some parade? And in the middle of the street, there's this lone figure, just one guy, and he's holding a torch that's on fire, walking down the middle of the street. I'm totally engaged in what's happening, and I see him, and as he walks by, the crowd erupts in cheers, and he's walking towards the St. Louis Arch. And it dawns on me that this is the torch that's making its way from Greece all the way to Atlanta for the 1996 Summer Olympics. And I'm getting to watch just this little tiny piece of history, of ancient history. I'm getting to to experience it firsthand. Now I tell you that because I want us to sort of stumble onto another piece of ancient history that has implications for you today. There's, there's, There's something good for you in this history. There is this celebration in ancient Rome called the Roman Triumph. It's where we get the word triumph. And what it was is when a military leader came back from some conquest, they would throw him the biggest parade possible. It's one of the most well-documented aspects of Roman history. um, And it's the highest honor, highest honor that you can imagine. So we're going to recreate a Roman Triumph today, here this morning. Our budget is a little bit smaller than the Romans. But we're going to try to do it. Um, Presley, you know how I've always told you you look like a Roman emperor? (laughs) Would you come up here and would you bring a chair with you coming up here? Would you just have a seat right here? Face everybody. All right. Presley, uh, Presley has been doing an awesome job as a youth minister. And conquest is not the right word, but he's just been doing great. And so we want to honor Presley with a Roman triumph. All right. So we're just going to walk through the stages and talk about it. And we're going to do this. This is an honor for Presley right here, right now. I've, I, all I ever do is give Presley words of affirmation 24-7. Uh, but this is, this is a little extra. All right. So what happens is in a Roman triumph before breakfast, before dawn, the military leader would gather and his soldiers that had been on conquest with him would gather around him and they would, they would like have a pep rally. They would cheer on this leader. So they would be like, you know, you're the best, you're the greatest. And they would have certain chants that they would do. So I would just, let's just all shout out Presley, what we think of him. Can we, we should do that, right? On the count of three, one, two, three. Yes. Yeah. Oh, hey, yes. This is Presley's encouragement bucket is just like, it's, it's filling up, but it's starting, it's right about here. So it's going to get better. Uh, by the way, my wife just said Presley is the greatest youth minister ever. And I spent 13 years as a youth minister here. So I'm just like, so that was the pre-dawn gathering. They gathered and they cheered this guy on. They sang his praises. They shouted his accolades. That was the first thing that you did. Just you and your soldiers with whom you had been in battle. And then the next thing they did is they got a purple robe. See, 
Uh, I raided our attic for some stuff, and this is, what, this is what I found. We don't exactly have a purple robe, but this is what we have. It, I think it's a curtain. <laughs> this is what we have. So Presley, I'm going to have you stand up in front of that chair. Okay, all right, and we're going to put this purple robe on you. Yeah, there we go. So the thing is, the reason purple was such a big deal is because it was kind of expensive. It was hard to make. You couldn't just go out and buy yourself a nice purple t-shirt. You, you had to get it specially made. And uh, it was a big deal. So it ended up being the royal color because it was, you know, it was like having name brand. This is a big curtain, by the way. I didn't think about this. I'm getting dizzy. Okay. And this great? So there we go. Let's just tuck that in right there. Excuse me. All right. He looks great. He looks great, doesn't he? I knew. See, this is the funny thing. When I was envisioning who would be good at this and who not only would be good at it, but enjoy it, it would be pressing. So the next thing you did is you got the crown, the, the laurel wreath crown, and uh, I just happen to have one of these. You can get these on, believe it or not, you can buy these on Amazon. Did you know that? It's kind of cool. So you got the laurel wreath crown. There we go. I hope people are getting pictures because this is looking good. Now this is, this crown is actually from the Olympic Games. It, it originated in Greece and then in Rome because it was all about the military conquest. It became the Roman thing that you did to say that, hey, this guy, we think he's pretty awesome. So then you would parade him through the city. So Presley, would you just take a lap right around there? All right, just take a lap. You'd parade, yeah, you'd parade him through the city. Yes. I actually meant all the way back there, but you do you. That's fine. You're the, you're the, this is your thing. All right. So you'd, and, and what you would do is you'd go through, they had this mapped out route through Rome. And one of the places it took you was the Circus Maximus. And you would actually go in there. And of course, everybody, you know, this place was full. By the way, this is kind of interesting little trivia tidbit. The Circus Maximus could fit 150,000 people. It is still the largest stadium that has ever been built. And so the emperor would go through there, take a couple laps to this cheering crowd, adoration, and they would do exactly what Presley's doing, like, oh, it's, yes, it's me, it's all about me, right? You know, you can, you can imagine that. Finally, you would work your way through to the most sacred spot in Rome, and that was Capitol Hill. That was on top of Capitol Hill is where the Temple of Jupiter was. And so the triumphator would exit from his chariot. By the way, he wasn't walking. He was in a chariot pulled by four horses, but I couldn't get that in the budget this time. <laughs> but the triumphator would exit from his chariot, ascend Capitol Hill. So I'm going to have you stand up on this chair. <laughs> How many of you think this is a bad idea? Me too. Okay, yes. Okay, you got it? There we go. Okay, very good. He would ascend up to Capitol Hill amid this adoring crowd. And he had in the parade procession, there were enemy uh, combatants. There was spoils of war. There were exotic animals from the places that he had been. And there were two bulls. And they would take those bulls up to the top of the Capitol. And they would allow the triumphator to sacrifice those bulls to the god Jupiter as the final culmination. And then the party started. And so this was the highest highest 
best honor that you could give anybody in Rome. So there you have it. There is the triumph with Presley as our triumphant. Very good, very good. All right, you can have a seat. In fact, you can just take all that with you. If you want to wear it, I don't care. Just have, have fun with that. So good job. Thank you, Presley. I really appreciate you doing that. There were a few variations, but those were the basics. That was basically what you did. And they were huge. We have nothing on these parties. They were huge. They were bigger than like the World Cup, the Super Bowl, the World Series, and the NBA Finals all put together. It was bigger than all of that. People just went nuts because it was a chance to celebrate how great Rome was, how awesome we are, how cool we are, how dominant we are, and people loved it. In fact, the theory was that the triumphator was God for a day. He joined the echelon of gods and he took his place as triumphator of Rome. So you can see why it's a big deal. Now I want you to hold on to that image of triumph, that Roman triumph, and we're going to look at what the Apostle Paul wrote to a distant Roman colony on the far edge of the empire. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Colossians chapter 2. It'll be on the screen as well if you want to just read along there. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. For in Christ, Paul writes, for in Christ the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and every authority. Now think about that claim just for a second. Here's a first century Hebrew rabbi and Paul is saying he's the one. But what about the Roman emperors? They're the ones, right? They're in charge. They're invincible. They're God for a day. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. It's this, it's this, it's this Hebrew carpenter. He's the one. He's, he's over every power and every authority. So last week we talked about this. We said that Jesus' claim was that he was king. That's what his claim was. He walked into Jerusalem and he was like, no, Caesar is not. It's not. It's me. I am king. I'm here. Repent and believe in my kingdom. And that's a big deal that we're choosing an allegiance to a certain king that looks very different. And our lifestyle, our behaviors and our priorities are going to be very different because we've chosen this king. Now, the, the next section is a little bit odd. So buckle up, hang on to your hats just for a second. Verse 11, in him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. It's a weird verse. And for us in the 21st century, we're like, ah, what is, what is this about? But hang on. Your whole self was ruled by the flesh. And that was the self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of legal indebtedness. Now, there's a lot going on in that verse. And I know we hear words, you see the word circumcision three times in a sentence, and you're like, I'm kind of out. I don't, what does this have to do for me? What is going on? 
But Paul's trying to help people understand this huge thing that has happened, and he's trying to give them language and mental images to understand what has gone on in their lives. And so for Hebrew people in his audience, Paul's like, hey, it's like you were circumcised. And the Hebrew people in the audience would be like, okay, all right, tell tell us more. But it's a circumcision of the heart. And the Hebrew people were like, whoa, mind blown. Or you go on and you see that you were dead in your trespasses. And so maybe the doctors or the the RNs in the crowd were like, hmm, dead, help me understand that. Yeah, you were dead. The heart was not beating. The flesh was still. The body was cold. But God made you alive. What? Or maybe the lawyers in the crowd were like, hey, what is this? Canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. Meaning that we had racked up some guilt that we did not know how to deal with. We did not know how to offload. And he's canceled that. If Paul were writing to 21st century America, it would be something different. Several years ago, I was following the story of this protest that was happening in Berkeley, California. And it was the summer of 2017. And it was called a rally against hate because, you know, that's a really strong stance to take. You know, you want to make sure that everybody knows that you are against hate. So you need to go out and write your anti-hate songs and, and, and signs and love your neighbor and all that. Now, the funny thing is, because this is always true, this is just the way our society is. You have a rally against hate and there's going to be some counter protesters that show up. And it was just a few people, just a handful of people. But I guess these are the pro-hate crowd. I don't know. And the pro-hate crowd wasn't quite as popular. So there's much more anti-hate than there are pro-hate. But if there's anything that the anti-hate crowd really hates, it would be pro-hate people, right? (laughs) The situation begins to get more and more tense. And the anti-hate people start yelling at the pro-hate people. There was a little bit of an association, at least it was presumed, whether or not it was true, there was an association with the pro-hate crowd that they had some connection to white supremacist groups. Um, So it was, you can see why this, there was a lot of tension in the crowd. So these quote-unquote pro-hate people who were protesting the anti-hate people realize this is about to get out of hand and they start to retreat. They start to leave the situation which makes the anti-hate, love your neighbor people, it's like blood in the water. And they start walking after them faster than running after them and then full out sprinting after them. One of the pro-hate guys, just a few, he trips and he falls on the ground. And the anti-hate crowd is on him just immediately. They're hitting, this is no joke, there's footage of this. They're hitting him with their hate is not welcome here signs. You have to make those signs really sturdy if you're going to use them to beat your neighbor. And it's just such a strange situation. Here's this guy that we're all against. We all think this person on the ground is wrong, but aren't you supposed to be anti-hate? Well, in the middle of this, of course, there's this huge um, group of reporters. Sometimes there's more reporters at these things than there are actual other people. Uh, The whole group of journalists. And one of the journalists' name is Al Letson. Al Letson. And he's watching this poor guy on the ground be beaten and stomped on with hate is not welcome here. You know, you can imagine the scenario. You can imagine the situation. His policy at his company that he works for, the, the, the news company that he works for, is do not get involved. We are neutral. Do not be part of the story. 
But he's also the son of a preacher, and he has less than a second to decide what he should do. And he immediately throws himself over the pro-hate guy that is being beaten on the ground. The pro-hate guy who has ties with white supremacist groups, and he throws his body to protect him from being pummeled by people that disagree with him. I don't know, but I think if Paul were writing us today, Colossians 2-3 might read something like, in our hate, we were rescued, we were forgiven and rescued by the one we hated. I think he might write that. We may not get the allusions to circumcision and the allusions to death to life and the allusions to legal indebtedness, but maybe that helps us understand the scenario, the dynamic here, that our Savior, while we were enemies, while we were perpetuating anti-Jesus values, threw himself on us to protect us from our own sin. It's a big deal, folks. Colossians chapter 2, verse 14, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. I've wrestled with this question. You probably have too. Why didn't God just forgive us? So I sin, right? Okay, I got angry one time and maybe I told a lie and I lusted, I sin. Why doesn't God just forgive us? I mean, he could. He's God. Why doesn't he just say, you're forgiven? Why the cross? Why that whole mess? Why that story? Why, why do you have the Old Testament leading up to, to this moment that Jesus dies on the cross? Why, not, why doesn't God just say forgive? A couple years ago, I got rear-ended at a, at a stop. I had pulled up to a stop, and the guy behind me did not stop and rear-ended me. I got out, and I looked at my bumper, and it had a dent in there, and I wasn't honestly completely sure if that was from him or another time. I mean, I don't drive brand new cars, so I didn't know. And this poor guy was clearly anxious and agitated. He was clearly worried that I was going to come out, like, holding my neck, like, oh, my whiplash, I think it's real bad. We've got to call an ambulance. He was worried that I was going to throw the book at him, and I didn't care. What's one more dent in my bumper? It really, who cares, right? And so I was able to tell him, and I was able to feel so good about it, like, ah, no problem, man. Don't worry about it. Go and rear in no more. Live your life. Why can't God just do that? I mean, why not? Why not just, hey, you are forgiven. Don't worry about it. It's no big deal. Why not? I mean, that's a, I think that's a fair question. Why doesn't God just forgive sins? Well, think about this. You remember that the charge of legal indebtedness? Imagine, this is going to be painful for us, but imagine your sins were written out like a charge in detail. Because I can say, oh, yeah, yeah, I've lied, you know. <laughs> I, I've, got, I've lost my temper. I've lusted. I'm only human. I can do that. But what if my sin was written out, the charges against me, the things that I've done. What if, what, if, what if there was a paper that said, hey, on April 3rd, 2023, in order to make myself look a little better, I lied to another human, someone that was already broken and struggling with their self-worth. And I, I piled onto that. In an attempt to make myself look better, I allowed them to think that they weren't worth the dignity of the truth. 
I made them feel like they deserved to be lied to. That they didn't deserve my honesty. What if our sins were written out like that? Like, I, I didn't just lust. I went to a website where a woman who has been mistreated her entire life, who's broken and who has been taught that her only value is to display her body for the gratification of strangers. And I added to that. What if my sins were written out like that? What if it was I gave vent to my anger? I was overwhelmed, I was frustrated, but I made a member of my own family feel small and unloved. And I created a rift, just a little crack in their heart, wondering if I really am trustworthy, wondering if I really do unconditionally love them, something that they will carry with them that will be hard to heal. What if our sins were written out like that? What if there was a charge of legal indebtedness that we had to face? It would be overwhelming. It's no wonder our world is broken because our world has moved away from this opportunity for redemption in the cross. We've, we've moved away from it. We've said that what, we don't need Jesus. We don't need God. We don't need religion. But the problem is our culture, our society still has guilt. They don't call it that. They still have sin. They don't call it that, but they still have that. There's no path to redemption when you leave the cross. There's no way to have your legal indebtedness canceled that stood against us. It's those sins that it says he has taken away, nailing them to the cross. I mean, what incredible news. If that's true, those things that burden me down, if that's true, those things can be taken away. Well, that's good news, right? That's the gospel. The fact that you don't have to live with that. But if you're walking around thinking, that's a big deal. So I looked at a website. So I said a mean word. Who cares? They'll get over it. If you're walking around like that, then no wonder the gospel doesn't feel like good news to you because you don't understand the weight of your sin. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. But look at what Colossians 2.15 says. He says, He's, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now, notice that, triumphing. That's a weird word to use there. Why would... Paul used the word triumphing over the enemy at the cross. Why would he use that word? Is that right? Is the cross a triumph? Is it a, is it a, a parade of victory? Is that, can that be right? Can Paul be viewing the cross that way? Is it a celebration of a conquering emperor? Mark chapter 15. I want you to see this because this is mind-blowing. Look at what he says. Mark chapter 15, verse 16. The soldiers led Jesus into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together a whole company of soldiers, 200 soldiers, way more soldiers than you needed to handle Jesus. Why did they call a whole company of soldiers together? Well, they put a purple robe on him. And they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they begin to call him, oh, hail, king of the Jews. Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. And then they paraded him through the city to a hill where he would be high and lifted up, and he would be the sacrifice. What we view as this dark day was Jesus' triumph. 
It was Jesus' coronation. And of course he didn't get a a laurel crown. Of course it was a crown of thorns. And of course his exaltation was on a cross. It couldn't be any other way. This is the gospel way. It's completely upside down from our own kingdoms. Of course it's that way. They didn't know it, but they were throwing Jesus a triumph. They were celebrating the best news. They were coronating the king. And they had no idea. They had no idea that Jesus is the king and he is exalted and he is high and lifted up. And on that cross, he canceled the charge of your debt, of your sin, of your legal indebtedness. That is good news. There are those of you sitting in this room that racing through your mind right now is a charge of legal indebtedness. There's something etched in your brain that when you lay your head down on a pillow at night, that's what comes into your mind because you're feeling the burden and the guilt of that thing, of whatever it is. And what we're here to tell you is that that is what Jesus took away on the cross. And maybe you'll have to go through this process thousands of times as you start thinking about, but I did this thing, but Jesus took it away. But I have this guilt, but Jesus took it away. You are forgiven that that charge has been nailed to the cross and it's done with. But that's such good news. It's such good news.